This is the Raider Cotton Nation podcast with your host, Alpha Mike, and our roster of co-hosts, we patrol America's law enforcement beat. We invite you today on a ride-along. Now, here's your weekly briefing on Raider Cop Nation. Transmitting high atop of Florida's peninsula at 108 feet, this is Alpha Mike, and you are listening to the Raider Cop Podcast. Today's episode 119 We feature the five best episodes of 2019. Because we have such an abundant audience, you have downloaded these five more than ever, more than any other uh, podcast. And uh, today we're going to enjoy. Now, there's a a format or formula that's indicative to me when I look at this list. Now, as you know, we have a format of five type of episodes that we uh, give on this program, and that is the uh, think out of the box uh, format, and that's basically thinking out of the box, how law enforcement can do things a lot better than what they're doing now, not getting stuck in that box, this is the way we do it and the way we will always do it. Uh, We have another platform, which is train up, we'll talk about training evolutions and and how they work and, and we'll discuss uh, the curriculum and the importance to that in law enforcement. The sidebar issue unfortunately has to do with uh, politics and law, and law enforcement is uh, flooded with political hacks. They are trying to destroy law enforcement um, its power, their uh, free thinking, their ability to enforce law. And uh, so we definitely talk about them quite uh, a lot on the podcast. And we have the roll call series, which is basically the day-to-day operations of law enforcement, which we really didn't have a lot of those in 2019, but they are one of our main focal points as well to train and teach and educate the public on how police officers go about their daily, and correctional officers as well, how they go about their basic day-to-day functions, because all you know is what you see on television. No, police cars, they drive around all day in the police car, and they stop people, and that's it. And you don't really know what goes into that. So that uh, roll call series uh, talks about that. And lastly, a wise guy series that deals with organized crime. And uh, with that being said, I'm going to read to you the five podcasts that won the most downloads in 2019. These are only 2019 podcasts. And that was uh, the Mongols, episode 94, Tampa Mob, episode 100, the Banano Family, episode 88, uh, the Cuban Mafia, 101, and lastly... Uh, Disorganized Crime, episode 95. They came down in that same order, one, two, three, four, and five. So we want you to sit back and enjoy, and uh, we enjoy bringing them to you. And uh, you're willing to listen. We're willing to put out the information. 2020 brings us a lot of new endeavors. Uh, I've always said you don't want to stay a midget. You want to grow since our inception in 
2017, we started as L Police Radio. 2018, we changed that name of that program, uh, L Police, and uh, we created the Raider Cop Nation. Since then, we are currently on 119 episodes, and we have continued to grow. Uh, so 2020 is going to bring us with uh, Raider Cop News, and you can see that on RaiderCopNation.com, and it's going to be a, a news-oriented section of our website, and you can subscribe to it, and then the list will go out for people to read, and they'll talk about things that are affecting law enforcement. Um short newsletters some of them will be attachments from the feeds that we get uh, dealing with those subjects and we'll forward them out if you want to subscribe and then um, 2021 most likely will bring us uh, YouTube uh, coming up with some ideas and uh, dealing with some very good uh, business people that have been uh, bringing in some fresh ideas and uh, we we feel that uh, we can draw something out and, and make it very beneficial to our listeners and our audience so we're not staying small we're growing we're constantly keeping on moving on up and uh, that's what you have to do in everyday life people you just can't stay small you have to grow. So with that being said, we want you to sit back, enjoy the five best episodes. We wish you a tremendous Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year. We are blessed beyond imagination with you as our audience. And we ask that the Lord continue to bless you, your family, the agencies that serve you. And most importantly, that God continues to bless and have mercy over the United States of America. Enjoy the show. You've earned it. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Mark 10, 45. And as we know that God gave his life, Jesus gave his life for us to be receiving eternal life once we confess of our sins. So, with that said, don't forget, this Wednesday, the 25th, Another program will come out of Test Everything 1521 on this very subject. Mark, chapter 10, verse 
one. Episode number 94, Mongols MC, and why everybody's watching. The question that we have to pose today, is everybody in the group a member of this organized crime, or are they a member of the club? That is very important, and it needs to be answered. And of course, we're going to answer it today. Mongols MC, established in 1969 by mostly veterans coming back from the Vietnam War. Of course, we know that during the Vietnam War, a lot of our veterans, as they came back, they were mistreated by our society in America, and they felt lost as a result of that. A lot of them went to go find themselves, and their brotherhood was so strong that they networked and networked in clubs, and primarily motorcycle clubs were a part of that. The one percenter life, which comes from the adage that 99% of motorcyclists are law-abiding citizens, but 1% are not and they're more of outlaw persuasion. Today we have to examine if it's still 1% or is that number grown as well. So they formulated their group together, and they call it the Mongols. They were lashing out, at maybe themselves, who knows what they were lashing out for, but they felt happy based on the freedom that they were receiving being part of this club. The club was formulated in Montebello, California. The motto of the organization is respect few, fear none. Today, they boast a membership of 1,000 to 2,000 members, somewhere in between. They've gone from humble beginnings in California, in Southern California, to worldwide membership. And some of the membership that they have, we'll go ahead and read you the quite plentiful list that they have uh, 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 formed or created. So they've got chapters in the following countries, Australia, Canada, Denmark, Germany, Indonesia, Mexico, Malaysia, Singapore, Switzerland, Thailand, and, of course, the United States. Here in the United States, they have chapters in Arizona, Arkansas, California, Colorado, Florida, Idaho, Idaho, uh, Indiana, Missouri, Nevada, New York, North Carolina, Oklahoma, Utah, Oregon, Pennsylvania, Tennessee, Texas, Washington, and Virginia. That was a mouthful in itself. They've been indicted several times, their membership has, by the United States government and the Justice Department. The question is, is that indictment an individual indictment or is it an indictment against an entire club? So you might be saying to yourself, how can you indict an entire club? Well, here's another question for you. If the government were to indict an individual club, not a person, would that scare you? I mean, think about it. Let's just say something a little bit more more far-fetched. 
some club that you belong to. It could be a bridge club. It could be a, um, a bowling club. And some people in that bowling club, for instance, might do things that uh, are against the law. But the government, instead of saying we're going to prosecute the two criminal bowlers, they go, we're going to go out and just prosecute the entire club. So as bowlers, the bowling club, they have their own bowling shirts with their bowling logo. And the government now wants to go ahead and confiscate their bowling shirts and their bowling logo. And let's say a upstanding citizen in the community is also a club member to this bowling team, comes in with his bowling ball that day to practice, has committed no crime, but he's met at the door of the, of the bowling club, uh, the bowling pin, the bowling alley, and the law enforcement officers tell him, take off your uh, club membership shirt. It's illegal. It's got the logo on it, and you're not allowed to have it. Of course, if that would have happened to regular citizens in America, they would be outraged, screaming, and hollering. But it is happening here to this specific group. Recently, the government went after their official logo or the jackets they wear that are called colors. And they've been trying to do this to government for over 10 years. Finally, they got a thumbs up in a they filed a criminal indictment towards the entire organization saying that they were criminal in nature. The jury agreed, and the jury also agreed as part of that uh, court case that the logo instilled fear and kind of motivated for criminal behavior. So the government proceeded to seize the logo. It was strange. And I remember when that happened, not too really, let me talk about this, this about three or four months ago. I posted it on Twitter, and I said that it was an outrage. Of course, some of our law enforcement brethren have something smart to say always for some, for some, for some reason. They always have to be Monday morning quarterbacks. But I wasn't defending the group. I was defending the Constitution. Because if the government can far reach with the story I just told you about the bowling ball club, and they're doing it to these one percenter motorcycle club guys, Who's next and what's next? So it's a little strange. But let's back up a little bit because we got a lot to talk about. And even one of their first members or founders, Jesse Ventura, which was the governor of Minnesota, like he says, and the, the wrestler uh, from the WWF days, Jesse the Body, and Navy SEAL. He was one of the founders in the beginning as he was transitioning out of the SEALs. He had to burn some energy, and he hooked up with the group, and they formed the Mongols. He even you know, went on to do some interviews right after this case, showing people he had a membership card 
and how he was allowed to keep his jacket from the members, from the club itself. And although he wasn't active anymore, he did ride and so forth, and he supported them. Wait a minute. If you convict this group today, then you're pretty much convicting Jesse Ventura, too. He was a crook and a criminal back in the 70s. And was that the premise that the group was founded under? Now, I know you're probably listening to God. Is this guy this freaking naive that he actually believes that they're all outstanding citizens? Of course not. We know what they are. But the question is, can the government prove that beyond a reasonable doubt? That's the Constitution. So let's go into a little bit of the background now where we deal with the government and how they've prosecuted them. There was an operation uh, called Operation Black Rain by the Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms where their agents infiltrated the Mongols. They ended up getting over 70 indictments. It was a huge takedown. And, of course, Doc Cavallo was in the middle of all that. And, uh, as always, in, in these pleas, you know, uh, you're facing 40 years, but the government says if you plea, you can do four months. Next thing you know, they're chirping like birds. Two. Episode 100, Tampa Mob. It all started in Ybor City, which is located in Tampa by a gentleman named Manuel El Gallego Suarez. What did he do? Well, back in the 1880s or so, he developed or brought, better said, bolita, which is translated into English, small ball. And that was the beginning of gambling. 100 balls, all of them have different numbers, place it in a sack, you draw the winning numbers. People can bet from five cents, ten cents to quarter to dollars to hundreds of dollars on the winning numbers. It's called bolita. It's been around since that time, and it's still alive today. That was the beginning of what was to come with the Tampa Mafia, or better said, as the Traficante crime family. Now, before we get to who is Traficante, we've got to break down a little bit of what was around before him in the criminal enterprise of Tampa at the time. Uh, there was a gentleman by the name of Charlie Wall, and he was the neighborhood thug. He was the one that was well-connected Southern gentleman that connect, had the politicians, the judges in his pocket, the sheriff, and he also had a very lucrative Bolita operation in gambling. Bolita was very, very well known within three communities in Tampa, that of the Cubans, the Spaniards, and the Italians. All three were product of Tampa and Ybor City. Ignacio Antonori, and he was credited, and he is credited as the first La Costa Nostra boss of Tampa. Not very well organized at the time. They were swimming upstream trying to take out Charlie Wall's lucrative operation with little to no connections. 
That era was called the Era of Blood that lasted 10 years at the end of that era. Charlie Wall ends up shotgun, shotgun blasting Antonori into oblivion and leaving uh, any opposition out of the way. But not quite so fast. Reason being, the underboss at that time for the Italian Mafia against Charlie Wall was a gentleman by the name of Santos Traficante Sr. Born in Sicily, arrived to the shores of Tampa at the tender age of 14 and married in to the Tampa Mafia when he married the daughter of Giorgio Cacciatore, which was also into Bolita. He quickly rose through the ranks of Santos Traficante Sr. in the Antonori organization to resemble that of the underboss. Again, the reason I say resemble, because they weren't as organized at the time. We're prior to 1931, when Charlie Lucky Luciano actually organizes the commission. And we're also uh, looking at um, the first early developments of the Italian mob in Tampa. Not as well organized, mostly on Sicilian principles at the time. Santos Traficante becomes the boss because Antonori was knocked out of commission by Wall in 1940. And he, as I said, he killed him with two shotgun blasts, and that was the end of him. And it throws Traficante Sr. into the mix, so he becomes boss of what is now going to be called the Traficante crime family. He rules from 1940 to 1954. Now, Traficante had one important thing that Antonori had and didn't have. He did have a couple of connections, Antonori, with a couple of uh, main guys or main people in New York, mostly out of uh, the Luciano family. But he wasn't as well-versed as Traficante Sr. with some others, where Traficante, he knew and had close relationships with Joe Bonanno, Tommy Lucchese, and, of course, Luciano himself. Traficante doesn't waste any time when he takes over. He's taken over this huge gambling operation called Bolita, He's running the rackets. Things are looking good and promising. Connections up in New York. Now, during the era of blood, that was the 10-year war war between Charlie Wall and Ignacio Antonori, a lot of the guys up in New York that knew Traficante from Sicily were telling him, just let... Just sit back and let, let the action roll. And uh, Antinori gets killed, then you take over. So everybody was just doing a let's wait and see. Buying time. Of course, by 1940, Luciano had already organized the commission. So Tampa coming on board was something very positive for 
de la Costa Nostra. One of the things that Santos Traficante Senior did was early on bring Santo Traficante Jr. into the fold. He showed him the ropes. He used him to the point of he wanted him to have the most uh, background and tutoring he could ever provide him. Santos Sr. reaches out to people like Tommy Lucchese from the Lucchese crime family and says, I need you to mentor my son, Santos Jr. He did. 1946, there was a big meeting, big commission meeting. The last one was in 1931 when Charlie Lucky actually proposed the commission. Now it's 1946, and Lucky Luciano had been arrested, served time, and deported to Italy, but he sails back to Cuba for this one big meeting in 1946 in the Hotel Nacional, and it's commonly called the Havana Conference. Everybody attended from Chicago, from Detroit, Cleveland, New York, of course. All the main players in La Costa Nostra attended the conference, and so did Traficantes. But Santos Sr. didn't go. He sent his son as an official rank of capo, but he was demonstrating to the New York La Costa Nostra and the rest of the bosses around the nation that his son would inherit the Traficante family. Santos Jr. quickly developed his roots in Cuba from 1946, protecting the investments that the family was doing in Cuba, hotels and casinos. As a result, in that meeting in 1946, there was a lot of decisions that were made and some of the slicing and dicing included the Traficante family. They were issued Florida, they were issued, of course, Tampa, and they were issued Cuba, but they had to organize Cuba. 1946, there was a lot of disturbing things that were going on. So everybody was going to get a piece of it, but Santos, Traficante, Senior, and Junior had the ability to put their name on it. And they took the most of it under the guidance and mentorship of Thomas Lucchese, Santos Traficante Jr. learned everything he could. His father dies in 1954. Now, prior to his father's death of natural causes, Traficante Jr. in 1953 is shot. Somebody shoots him. They weren't really sure at the time who it could be. But then they remembered an old menace that they had back in the Antonori days, and that was Charlie Wall. Well, he was still around becoming a tick in their ass, so Santos Jr. took care of him, a couple of shotgun blasts for Charlie Wall in 1955, and he was gone. Santos Jr. takes over the rackets in 
from 1954, the death of his father. And he rules with an iron fist. It's one of the things that he learned in his mentorship. He guided the family to lucrative business operations that his father really didn't foresee. But he did. Obviously, we know that the interest in Cuba from 1946 to 1959 were running pretty good. And uh, there were other interests in Cuba there, too, like Meyer Lansky. Other crime families were there. But the Traficantes really took off with that operation. They actually fled Tampa and in the 50s because of congressional hearings. You know, they had... Uh, the uh, congressman, the wacky congressman with the with the gavel and the microphone, very similar to what we have today. And they were doing uh, mob commission hearings back then in the 50s going around the country. So the traficantes, they said, well, that's time for us to split out of here and head to Cuba, and they did. They left a guy in charge by the name of Ataliano in charge of the rackets while they were gone. But uh, he was not effective leader as they thought, and um, he was uh, muscled out by somebody else, a guy by the name of Luma, Lumia. And uh, Charlie Wall was still hanging around too, thinking it was funny. So when the Tafikantes headed back to Tampa to take care of business, Junior got shot. Junior got shot. Dad dies a year later. Uh, Junior gets shot in 53. Dad dies in 54. Junior takes over in 54. And Junior takes care of Charlie Wall and his problem. And any Costa Nostra family that wanted to operate in Florida, they needed to ask for permission from him. Because he wasn't only a boss. He was sitting on a commission. So you couldn't come down here and I'm with so-and-so and all this and I'm a soldier and I'm a captain. Nobody saw you. This guy's a boss and he's on the commission. So everybody treaded very carefully in Florida asking for permission and order to deal in Florida. Now, at the end... There are some interesting things that happened. We discussed that Santos Traficante Jr. was in jail in Cuba, imprisoned by the Castro brothers. He wasn't there very long. Frank Rogano did get him out. Most likely he had to pay a huge amount of money to get him out. And he went back to the States. Shortly after Traficante arrives back to the States, it's believed that he was approached by the Central Intelligence Agency, because they knew he had a vendetta to get back at Castro because of the millions that he had lost in Cuba with casino and some hotels that he actually owned. Of course, uh, Santos Traficante Jr. testifies in a Senate, or excuse me, a congressional hearing and he basically says that, yes, that the CIA did recruit him. And uh, he just uh, very, uh, not too many details, explains that he gave that 
to somebody else to handle and uh, gets himself out. He blames um, from Chicago Sam Giancana and uh, that he had a lot more to do with it than he did. And, of course, we know how uh, Sam Giancana ended up on his kitchen floor with two bullet, bullet holes in the back of his head. So that might not have been good for him. The Traficantes were... His power base was more than just New York. Some families, small families, they had connections. For example, I'll give you an example. Philadelphia, which maybe had about 60 made members, maybe a little bit more, they were very friendly, and they had their power base with the Genovese family and the Gambinos to a certain extent. And But they didn't have any other relations with other family members. Maybe the Buffalinos, which were in Pennsylvania, but other than that, they didn't, you know, it wasn't West Coast, Los Angeles, or Chicago, nothing. You know, there were small interactions, but not any real rooted connections. Traficante didn't have that. He knew everybody, and everybody knew him because everybody was involved in Cuba, and everybody wanted a piece of that. And those routes that he had were million-dollar routes that were bringing uh, the, that bad stuff from from Europe over to America. So he knew bosses in Chicago, Los Angeles, New Orleans, Buffalo, Cleveland, uh, Boston, New York, New Jersey, and he dealt with all of them. So he had friends. Today... It is uh, divvied up by the five, five families, and I would venture to say because of the state of the Tampa mob that or the Traficante family, that uh, whatever remnants that they have left have been absorbed by the five families of New York as well. Three. This is episode number 88 where we're going to speak about Dong Pepino Bonanno, the father, as he quoted, of the Bonanno family. Now, the Bonanno family was awarded to Joseph Bonanno in 1931, the commission, which today still exists. The commission at the time awarded Joe Bonanno his own family at the tender age of 26. He moves through his family, of course, like all mafiosos at the time. He's from a sacred tradition coming from areas of Sicily. And, of course, he brings that Sicilian mindset into this organized crime. Now, not all mafiosos are Sicilian, but they are from Italian descent. Bonanno comes from a tradition where the Sicilians would say they were men of honor. And we'll talk about a a biography that he did, which cost everybody greatly. And we'll explain that later on. But their sacred tradition is basically the boss is the boss, and he ruled. In astonishing history of the mafia, he he ruled his family for over 30 years, which in itself is legendary. Now, there was an interview where Joseph Bonanno was interviewed by 60 Minutes, 
And this claim comes from Ira Rosen, which is a 60 Minutes producer. He basically says that the power of the mafia over the FBI was that Lansky, Meyer Lansky, and we'll talk about him in the future in the Wise Guys series of Raider Cop Nation, he was the bearer of the secret. He's the one that had the picture. When they pressed him for what he was saying, he said, yeah, he had the picture of Jay Hoover and the discovery of the mafia that he was homosexual. So they bribed Jay Hoover. That's from Joseph Bonanno. In 1964, say that he was kidnapped while walking with his attorney down the street in Manhattan. They are the boss of a family in the middle of a, of a war, the Banana Wars. You don't have bodyguards? Nobody believes that. So obviously, it was later disputed in the testimony of a New Jersey crime family that said that Banana created that whole thing up. Um, he was on the run. And he went to his cousin, Mangandino, for protection. And Mangandino up in Buffalo, New York, kept him there for six weeks until he couldn't take him anymore. He said, get lost, you're on your own. So Banana was on the run at this point because he knew that the commission was going to, they were going to kill him eventually. So he decided to run. That caused the Banana Wars. And there's a lot of dispute of who's boss and who's not because the Banana crime family was split into two factions. The faction that the commission had approved and said, okay, you're the boss, and the loyalist, the one that said, who's this guy going to be boss? This guy ain't, he ain't nobody. So these two fractions, they're just fighting it out, shooting it out daily on the street, and that went on for years. So in 1973 now, this is an important date in the Bonanno family, they come up with, a ruling commission of Joe Diamond Evoli, Joe DeFipley, De and Phil Rusty Rastelli. These three now are capos, and they're going to run the daily activity of the Bonanno family. Now, the commission came up with the, the panel of three because the disrespect, if they pick somebody, well, no, you picked him because he's a puppet of so-and-so, so to avoid that, they came up with the council of three in a family. <laughs> that will play into our musical chair scenario down the road in a few minutes. When Phil Ristelli finally takes over in 1973, he's appointed the boss because our other two commission members or capos, uh, Joe Diamond and Joe DeFippoli, they uh, die out, simple as that. They're in old age, and I'm going to prison, I'm dying, they died. So Rastelli now, Rusty Rastelli, which is a capo in Math Maspeth, Queens, he takes over, and he was true to legendary form. There, today, there's not too much known about him. He was born in Brooklyn. That's it. Nobody knows where he came from, where his family was, who... He's a freaking mystery even to the mob. But he's a loyalist because he spent so many years behind bars and he never sang. And as a result of that, he had 
respect of many soldiers and compos out on the street. They respect, and all different families, because Rusty Ristelli wouldn't talk. Now, Ristelli has a young protege underneath him. Showed him the rackets early on, and that would be Joe Massino. Now, we're going to get to him in a minute. But while Phil Rusty Ristelli's in prison from 73 to 91, Carmine Galante comes out in 74. Now, Carmine Galante was an important figure in the Bonanno family under Joe Bonanno. At one time, he could have been the underboss, and, of course, he was a capo. He was from the old town in Sicily, where Joe was from, and therefore he dealt in, let's say, uh, narcotics like McDonald's deals in Big Macs. And he's an earner. So he did a long stint in prison where he started talking and talking real tough behind bars that when he goes out in the street, he's going to take what's his. Because at the end, he was a banana loyalist and he didn't like what all this crap that was going on. People were going to have to deal with him when he got outside. Tough guy. And a lot of the other mob families didn't want to deal with him. And they definitely didn't want to mess with him. Comes out and he starts dealing in heroin and big bushels. This is during the era of what is known as the French Connection. And Rust- um, excuse me, Colante's uh, up into his kneecaps into a lot of this stuff. He's very arrogant, very flamboyant. He has positioned himself as acting boss. Rustelli basically to keep the peace, has allowed him to be the street boss or the acting boss while he's in prison. But a lot of people were uncomfortable with uh, Galante, cigar-toking Galante at the helm. So his demise comes after he starts flipping his mouth in 1979, July 1979. They got rid of him with... um, couple of shotgun blasts at Joe and Mary's Italian-American restaurant in Nicobaca Avenue in Brooklyn. And that was the end of uh, Joe Galante died with cigar in mouth and everything. And Rostelli, he reached out to his protege, Joseph Massino. And he basically said, now this is a young guy, he's just a soldier at the time. And he said, you tell people that I sent you. Now, the reason he could say that is because Messina was from Rostelli's crew in Maspeth, Queens. Everybody knew if he used Rostelli's name, it's got to be true. He went to the other families and he told them, Phil wants to whack uh, Carmine Galante because he's dealing in dope and that's a a no-no. Now, that's one of those rules that the mafia has that's a rule but not really a rule. It's a, it's a wink and a nod, and that is you're not allowed to deal in drugs because drugs is bad business, and we don't do that. But a lot of them do it. But if you get caught, it's a death sentence. Four. They don't want the local cops anywhere near what's about to go down because they're more gangster than the gangsters themselves. So the young... Jose Miguel Battle shows up to Cuba as a vice cop and does his due diligence 
and whatever assignments he was given. But during his course of his assignments, his superiors started to watch and, and have a watchful eye for him. And they kind of pulled him over to the side and they said, son, we don't make a lot here, so we're always thinking about opportunity. Shortly after, certain individuals in Havana casinos, the owners, one of them by the name of Martin Fox, and he was a banker of a lot of operations, especially Bolita. He was also the owner of the Tropicana Hotel. So he knew the rackets, and he knew them very well. He took Miguel, uh, Jose Miguel Battle, under his wing, and he kind of broke him into Tolon. Not that we're going to bribe our way out of any arrest. No, he didn't do that. What he basically said is, son, I need you to take this envelope and give it to your chief of police, which he doofully did because he was told to. And, of course, it was a payoff, and a payoff to his chief of police. At that time, he was a vice cop in 1951. They were skimming off the top chief of police. The, his superiors were all making money. And he looked around and he said, when in Rome, do as the Romans do. He paid off his chief of police, the guy by the name of Jose Salas Canzaras. And uh, he was making up to $5,000, and that's a lot of money, 1951, a month from the casino rackets that were going on. Those payments were coming out of Fox. Mr. Martin Fox also took the opportunity of introducing young Jose Miguel Battle to not only other hotel owners, but some of these American gangsters that had come down here and are running the operation to make sure that the operations that they were running ran smoothly. There was several introductions made, and of course the first one was to Meyer Lansky. He was the guy running the casino floors on a lot of hotels. Miguel Battle was introduced, and he moved on. He had his day-to-day -day operations. He wasn't really going to get involved in anything. There was the carrot arrest every month. Carrot arrest meaning they'd give something up just to make it have a good appearance that law and order was being conducted, and everybody was happy. But Mr. Fox also introduced young Jose Miguel Battle to an Italian mafioso by the name of Santos Traficante Jr. Now, Santos Traficante Jr. at the time was not the boss of the Traficante family. His dad was. His father, he was a capo, a captain, and his father dispatched him to Cuba since 1946 to organize those casinos and gambling and the operation that the Italian La Costa Nostra could pull off in Cuba. Of course, the Traficantes had moved down there, actually. They were actually living there. That's how lucrative uh, the operation 
had begun. So while in Havana in 1952 battle, uh, he got married. And uh, the offspring of that marriage was young son by the name of Jose Miguel Battle Jr. What a coincidence. Took after the old man's full name by placing Jr. at the end of his. Living in a section of Havana called Luyanol. Quite coincidentally, in this era, in the 1950s, my parents live in the same area. And and it's Cerro in a section called Lulinod. So coincidentally, they all live in the same place. How small the world, my friends. So Battle gets married, has a son, and he is getting more and more involved, of course, in what is lucrative, what makes money, how they make money, how they skim, and, of course, Bolita. He is learning the trade, making money. He is uh, living high on the hog, and pretty much he's planned out his future uh, with those organized rackets in Cuba, probably in his mind for the next 30, 40 years. But time will change everything as a bearded, smelly, cigar-toking individual will all of a sudden seize the country like Bernie Sanders on a white horse, take it over for his own lucrative and selfish behaviors and conduct something called, at the time he said he wasn't, but he really was a communist. And that was that would be Fidel Castro. Five. Episode number 95, Disorganized Crime. Today we speak about three specific groups that partnered on one mission, one objective, and how it ended up turning out. We're talking about the Russian mob. We're talking about Cubans. And we're talking about Colombians. All three meet specifically for something, and it turns into almost a disaster. But what it does for law enforcement, it tells them, a clear, clear story on what's going on. It is something that becomes mind-boggling. But criminals flock together and they make money regardless of who you are. My research with the Russian organized crime led me to this specific story. Now, I have known about this specific story in my uh, trials in Miami in law enforcement, I know who these individuals were. It was just something that I didn't follow much. And I can say a little bit about the suspect or the subject we're going to talk about today and what our, our views in law enforcement at the time was about this specific individual. The first character that we have coming up is Ludwig Tarzan Feinberg, born 1958 in Odessa, Russia. He ends up immigrating to the United States sometime in the 1980s. And 
he does a brief stint in the Israeli military because he leaves Russia and he's, he immigrates to Israel first. Now let's pause right there and look at just briefly, because we are going to do a Wise Guy series on the Russian mob where we kind of break it down a little bit more for you kind of understand where they come from. Just like we did with the Italian Costa Nostra, we spoke about their early beginnings as well. The Russian criminal element starts during the time of the Tsar. So we're going way back. And it was in Russia at that time was the have and have-nots. The people that didn't have were treated subhumanly. So they organized to conduct criminal behavior to survive, to eat, to produce. They would click together as a criminal enterprise, and they would give an oath not to snitch each other out and to share the profits in a given, let's say, community. The reason for this is because they were fighting the elitist, which was the czar, and they were doing everything in their power to undermine that operation. Of course, the czar is toppled, and Lenin takes over. Lenin becomes a, a victim of these criminal groups where they ended up robbing him. Of course, the sentence for a lot of them was execution at that point. But they continued to grow. Even though we changed the ruling head of Russia from czar to communism, communism and Lenin, they continued to basically do the same thing. Then Lenin dies, Stalin takes over, and we're met with the Second World War. Stalin agrees to many of them that are in jail. The jail now has become their universal university system for thievery. Now, another background which a lot of people fail to realize, especially when we're speaking on the term of Russian mafia, the high level of education. Up to this point that I'm talking about, we're at Stalin now, and in or before the beginning of the Second World War, they had received a pretty high education uh, as, let's say, peasants. They still knew functions of reading and writing and so forth. So they were educated. Under Stalin, he agrees to let a lot of them, millions of them out of prison as long as they signed up for the war effort. Well, they saw the opportunity. It was a 50-50. Either we survive and we steal and plunger or we die, but we don't die here in prison. So a lot of them did through that service. Of course, they were betrayed at the end of their term of service for the, for the country in the Second World War, thinking that they would be rewarded. Stalin brought them all back to prison. He incarcerated millions and eliminated millions, as we know history tells us. But this criminal enterprise continued to flourish. 
become educated, become sophisticated, become engineers, doctors. The, the level of education is very high and superior. These are not your ordinary thugs that don't know how to read and write here. These know more than the next guy, making them a lot more dangerous. Of course, communism falls in the 1980s under the stiff hand of Ronald Reagan and his policies. The Soviet Union crumbles. It falls into economic disarray. And there was no system in place other than the system that had existed since the beginning of the czar with the thieves. They were in partnership with the government always, even during the era of Lenin and Stalin. Remember, Stalin made an agreements with them that they could you know, serve their country, even though he broke his agreement. But they continued always. Corruption was part of their business part of their society, part of their fabric, so they continued to, to operate with the government. So when communism falls, the leadership falls, the uh, economic stability of Russia or the Soviet Union falls apart. This is humongous. We're talking about not only Russia, other countries that are affected, like Romania and so forth, uh, 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 East Germany, all these countries that were under the Soviet Union start to crumble. Well, this criminal influence, they worked in many elements and in many fields. Now we're going to start talking about the uniqueness of how the Russian mob operates. They're not like the Costa Nostra here in America where they have a family and structure. We have spoken about that. And basically, in uh, the Italian criminal justice, uh, criminal organizations, excuse me, they just have their hand in anything they can, and they will extract money from it, whether it's the garbage business, construction, or um, uh, prostitution, or... Uh, even drugs that they're not supposed to be in, but they are in, but don't say anything, act like you didn't, you know, that kind of thing. So in the Italian mafia, they have their hands and everything, and the money goes up the chain. So, but here in the Russian mob, there are specific specialists in specific areas. They are not necessarily intertwined. If you're over there, let's say in banking, that's what you do. You're not going to cross over here to my syndicate, which is, let's say, arms. And I sell arms. Or I might be in a drug trade. Or I might be in human trafficking. So they have specific areas of specialty that they kind of stick to. Now, of course, if you become uh, a leader, we'll say a leader. Again, the leadership is not identified like it is in other criminal justice, criminal organizations, excuse me again, they are more based on, did you have prison time? Or what we used to call ring time. So these people that have gone to jail for lengths of time, they 
brandish themselves with tattoos, and that identifies them as being the criminal element. And they're called VOR, V-O-R. And those people become and get a leadership status within the Russian mob who you uh, did apprenticeship under kind of dictates who you are in the thick of things. Three, two, three. Four, three, two, three. Just, uh, 1322. 